Please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 119. I'm going to read the first eight verses of this psalm. Psalm 119, beginning in verse 1 and through verse 8. This is, of course, the section, the first section of this great psalm. Psalm 119, beginning in verse 1, going through verse 8. Remember, as I read, as you follow along and as you hear, this is the word of God. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. Let's pray once more. Father, for your word, now we give thanks. We thank you that your spirit is at work through your word, doing the work that he is given to do. And we pray that he might do that. Open our hearts to your word. May, we, may it convict us of sin and train us in righteousness. We ask that you would use it to thoroughly equip us for every good work. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. There's a famous poem that has a number of quotable lines. It was written by Alexander Pope. It's entitled, Essay on Criticism. And there are a number of places in this poem where the lines from it have come into common usage, to err is human, to forgive divine. And the one that comes to my mind this morning as we embark on this study of Psalm 119 is, is this one, fools rush in where angels fear to tread. And the reason why I say that is because many commentators, many preachers, when reaching this psalm, have decided that, in fact, it would be better to leave it unexamined and unpreached because of its great depth and because of its great complexity. Augustine, famously, as he was preaching through the Psalms, uh, decided to skip over Psalm 119. Now, he later was prevailed upon to come back and to examine it and to preach it, to proclaim it. But he said this after he came back to it. We he writes this about Psalm 119, as often as I began to reflect upon it, it always exceeded the utmost stretch of my powers. For in proportion, it seemeth more open, so much the more deep doth it appear to me, so that I cannot know how deep it is. And there is a sense of that when we approach this psalm. We know it's the longest of all the psalms in Scripture. 176 verses. We know and we can see that it's an acrostic psalm, and so there's a great deal of artistic and and literary uh, uh, convention in in this psalm, a great deal of complexity to it. So each, each section, as you know, begins with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet, so that if you were reading this in Hebrew, every one of the lines in the first eight verses would begin with the letter Aleph, and then the next, Baith, and so on. We know that it's one of the Torah Psalms in the Psalter. If we classify the Psalms, we would say that this is one, along with Psalm 1 and along with Psalm 19, that is particularly focused on the Scriptures. And that gives a 
an added weight to it, perhaps, and an, and an added difficulty to it. We can see as well in terms of its uh, placement in the Psalter. It's in Book 5. It comes just before the Psalms of Ascents and just after a psalm that begins, Give Thanks to the Lord. And the others that begin with Give Thanks to the Lord are 107 and 136 and 137. So there is a structuring going on here. And Psalm 119 is, in a sense, preparing us for the Psalms of Ascents, but also culminating what we've just read. And to make matters even more perhaps difficult, it does not have a superscription associated with it. it it's uh, often attributed to David, but it doesn't specifically say that it's a psalm of David. But nonetheless, despite any of these challenges, this psalm is one that really does demand our full attention. It, it probably encapsulates, as well as any single chapter in Scripture, what we mean when we say things like experimental Calvinism or, or biblical piety. That's really what the psalm ends up describing for us, and, and that's really the portrait that we receive when reading this psalm. Charles Bridges puts it this way, it contains, this psalm contains the anatomy of experimental religion, the interior lineaments of the family of God. It's given for the use of believers in all ages as an excellent touchstone of vital godliness. And uh, Alexander goes even a step further in saying this, there is no psalm in the whole collection which has more the appearance of having been exclusively designed for practical and personal improvement than the one before us. Now, it also goes to great, not just great lengths in its description, it goes to great depths. We mentioned the 176 verses in this psalm. It exceeds uh, all other psalms. In fact, in fact, Spurgeon makes the point, it, it equals in bulk 22 psalms of average length in the Psalter. And it really is, in that sense, both in breadth and depth, uh, 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 and, and unequaled in the Scriptures picture of personal holiness and godliness. So look at the first two lines. If that weren't enough, if those testimonies by others greater than ourselves weren't enough, look at the first two lines of this psalm. It begins in verse 1 and in verse 2 with this word, blessed or blessed are. There's no other place in the Psalter where this is repeated twice in successive verses. It, it reminds us of the opening of Psalm 1, which is really the introduction to the whole book of Psalms. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly or stand in the path of sinners. And it reminds us of the ending of Psalm 2, the other introductory psalm in the Psalter, where it, it talks about the blessing of those who find their rest in the Messiah. But here it repeats it twice. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies. Now that introduction ought to, ought to strike us, because what the writer is doing is he's making it very clear that what he's describing here, not just in this first stanza, but throughout the whole psalm, what he's describing here is what real blessing consists in. And I wonder if you had been asked the question on the way in, what does a blessed life look like? What, what would it be like for you to reach the end of your days and say, I've been 
greatly blessed. Who, who is it that you look to and you say, that's a person who is enjoying the great blessings of God. Oftentimes we look to the blessings of family or the blessings of health or the blessings of vocation or the blessing of living in a time of peace and prosperity. Do you notice, of course, that's not the blessed blessedness of verses one and two. In fact, the blessing of the man, which is what the psalm deals with in the first three verses, has everything to do with walking in the way of the Lord. Look at how verses one and two juxtapose one another. In verse one, it begins from the outcome, the way being blameless, and then goes right to the source of that outcome, who walk in the law of the Lord. In other words, those whose way is blameless are those who are walking in God's law. And in verse two, it seems to invert those two things because in verse two, it begins from the source, the testimonies of God. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies. And then it continues describing that by saying, this is the one who, those who seek him with their heart. And then goes on in verse three to say, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. Well, let's look at verse one. In verse one, it describes this blessed life as being one where someone is walking in the blameless way. What does that word mean here? Well, what we see when we look at this word and we, and we trace it across uh, the Old Testament, what we see is that more often than not, it refers to a kind of integrity. It's not necessarily speaking of absolute perfection in the sense that we might think of it. And here, I don't think he's describing total sinless perfection in this initial description, but he is talking about the, the, the blamelessness in that there are no, there are no things that are out of joint. There are no, there's, there's nothing that, that doesn't fit with the whole. In fact, oftentimes this word is used in just that way, translated in just that way as integrity. Here it's used, uh, the, the word that's used is, is also the word that's used of animals in sacrifice. And so the question we have to ask ourselves and the picture that we have to put in front of our eyes based on verse one is the picture of one who is blessed because his his way has a kind of integrity to it. What I mean is, is this, the parts fit the whole, the speech matches the thoughts, the actions in private match the actions in public. The, the person who knows this individual in one setting and then sees him in another setting sees essentially the same person with the same kind of character. What a great blessing it is when you meet those who know someone very well and they say something like this. He's the same person in private as he is in public. What you see is exactly who he is. And how tragic is it when we hear the opposite? Far too often don't we hear things like this. The, the man you knew in public wasn't the one you knew inside the home. Those kinds of things are devastating. And the blessed man is the man whose way has integrity and wholeness. And how is that? Well, it's because he's walking in the law of the Lord. You want your whole life? to match up with what you profess with your mouth? Well, the psalmist says the way in which that takes place is by walking consistently in every area of life according to the light 
of God's law. Now in verse 2, he expands upon this blessed man. You, You could almost say that he's repeating himself here. There is some repetition and some overlap, even though the terms that are used are different terms. Here he doesn't talk about the way that's blameless. Instead, he talks at the end of verse 2 as the one who seeks him, seeks the Lord with his whole heart. Now, if you know your Old Testament, you know that that is almost a technical phrase in the Old Testament. It's used particularly in First and Second Kings to describe kings who are obedient to the Lord. They, they are following the Lord with their whole heart. It's, of course, a phrase from Deuteronomy because that's what all God's people who received God's law were ultimately supposed to do. They were to follow God with their whole heart. And this one, you could say his life is one of integrity because he obeys the scriptures, the law of God. You could also say he's one who, who follows after God with the whole heart. Again, we see tragic counterexamples, don't we? I mentioned kings and the way in which godly kings are described as following God with their heart. And kings who are mixed in terms of their obedience are described as not following God with their whole heart, but in some way following after other gods. Remember that tragic description of King Solomon. When he gained power, it says, his heart was led astray. And you remember, too, in the northern kingdom, Jeroboam, it says, had thoughts in his heart about how the people should worship God. And then their hearts are led astray by his heart, which was not fully devoted to the Lord. You don't have to read the Gospels where Jesus says that it's out of the heart that come these evil actions to see that. It's clear in the description of the Old Testament. It's why the Proverbs tell us to guard our hearts. But here, the blessed man is seeking God with his whole heart. It's a little bit like the seal that John Calvin used later in life attached to his letters, the the heart inside the hand. And you know, of course, that after Calvin's death, they... They put this phrase around it because it, it, exa- it encapsulated what Calvin was trying to get at. My heart, I offer to you, Lord, promptly and sincerely. Well, that's the blessed life, according to the psalmist. There are all kinds of other things that are blessings from God, legitimate blessings from God. But it, the blessed life starts with a blameless way, walking in the law seeking him with the whole heart. Notice how this is connected in verses 2 and 3, once again, with the word of God. It begins with, blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart. There's no place in the scripture, and there should be no place in your theology or in your understanding of yourself. There's no place for someone to say, you know, I love God with my heart, but, but I don't actually follow his word. I'm not actually going to study the scriptures and live by them. But but believe me, if you could see my heart, I love God. But isn't it the case that we often meet people like that? We often meet people who say they have a, a deep, maybe even a heartfelt love for God. And yet when you open the word of God and point to what God has actually said, what God has actually commanded, they have nothing but hatred 
for the commands of God. No, loving God's word and submitting yourself to God's word and immersing yourself in God's word is what it looks like to have a heart that follows wholly after God. There's no separation between these two things. Similarly, we could say that there's no place in the scriptures for someone to really love the word of God. I study the word of God. The word of God, the Bible is my most prized possession. And yet my heart is far from the Lord. There are those kinds of scribes and scholars described in the gospels. But Jesus has no words of assurance for them. No, the way it's supposed to be is that you're seeking God with your heart, which means you're filling your mind with his commandments and you're obeying his commandments. Notice, too, that these first three verses, which describe the blessed man, really leave very little room for other sources of authority. We know, of course, that there are areas that the Bible doesn't speak to directly, uh, areas which require great wisdom. But the, pers- but the perspective here is that the word of God, the commands of God, the law of God, the precepts of God do, in fact, give us everything we need for life and godliness. You remember what Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scriptures breathed out by God, and it's profitable so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Peter begins his second letter. He has given us everything we need for life in God through the knowledge of his son. And this is the description of the blessed man. He knows that the word of God speaks to every area of his life and that what he needs to do to walk in integrity, what it means to have a heart lifted up to God promptly and sincerely is to have every area of his life governed by God's word. Are there areas of your life that aren't governed by God's word? Are you good at taking theology exams? Uh, but there are whole sections of your life that are off limits to the authority of Scripture. That's not the blameless life. That's not actually seeking God with your whole heart. Four introduces, I think, a new aspect to this section of the psalm. I would put it this way, that if verses 1 through 3 describe the blessed man, verse 4 describes the provision of God. Now, in a sense, that provision has already been assumed in the first three verses, but it's made clear in verse four. Notice that the psalm, he's addressing what God has done. And look at what God has done. This is a, this is a glorious verse. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. See, the life of integrity, the life of having a heart given over fully to God, uh, the life of listening to his word constantly and applying it to every area of our life, wouldn't be possible if God hadn't actually given us his word, if he hadn't actually revealed himself to us, if he hadn't actually given us commands. We, we couldn't possibly have this this uh, this uh, blameless life. We couldn't possibly have a heart that's bent toward him. But in fact, what verse four reminds us of is that God has 
commanded his precepts. And they're commanded to be kept diligently. Just look at how things function in the world. Look at the kind of phrases that are used for personal improvement. Uh, People say, I want to do better. Or they tell you to get your act together. Do no harm. Or remember the original slogan of Google, don't be evil. What does that even mean apart from the word of God? How do we even define what progress looks like, what better looks like, what evil is? But see, for us, the Bible answers all of these questions. We can know right from wrong. We can know how to walk. We can know how to live. The Bible addresses questions as basic as what does it mean to be human? What is marriage? How are children to be raised? What is God? How are we to worship God? How are we to find wisdom? See, that's, that's the beauty of verse 4. God is a God who has spoken to us in and by his word. And that word is to govern all of our life. Charles Hodge puts it this way. The Bible gives us not only the facts concerning God and Christ, ourselves, and our relations to our maker and redeemer, but also records the legitimate effect of these truths on the minds of believers. We cannot appeal to our own feelings or inward experience. That's a dead end. He says, unless we can show that those feelings agree with the experience of holy men as recorded for us in the scriptures. Even think of the most basic and consequential question that every human being needs to ask himself. This ought to be at the top of your list of questions. What must I do to be saved? And how do we find the answer to that question? We find it in the Bible because you've commanded your precepts. You've given us your word. You've made these things clear. Our confession, of course, you know this language very well, says the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith in life, is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence, may be deduced from Scripture. You take Scripture out of that, and look at all the things that you're missing. The counsel of God, the things necessary for His own glory, man's salvation, faith in life. This is contained for us in the Word of God. You know, perhaps you've met people in other nations or from other backgrounds who for a time had to live without some portion of the Word of God. I'll never forget meeting a man who ministered in various places in North Africa, but he was telling me in particular about some men that he had just uh, met with in the Sudan. These men had received the good news of Jesus Christ, and God had saved them, but they had just little scraps of the Bible in their own language, you know, maybe a page or something from the Scriptures in their own language. But even that page they treasured as their most prized possession because this was the word of God to them. And it addressed all these deep questions that they had the most important questions in all of life. I remember in the early 90s, meeting with some believers who had lived through the, the, the Soviet Union, the time of the Soviet Union, and some of the, the harshest time times in Soviet history. And they said there was, there was a radio that they had that could for a once a week, tune into this channel that was broadcast from somewhere in the West. And, and all that would happen during that half hour is 
is the Bible would be read. And what they did, because they treasured God's word, because they knew how significant it was, they just wrote it down by hand. So that week by week, they're trying to, their Bible's growing little by little. It's illegal, of course. They can't have it. They certainly can't buy it. Uh, But they know how valuable it is. See, again, this is the glory of God's word. The blessed man, but then the provision of God in giving us his word. Finally, we get to this last section. And the last section is really built on what the psalmist says at the end of verse four, because it's not just that God has commanded precepts. What a glorious truth. So grateful that God has given us his word. We'd be lost. We'd be in the dark. But it's not just that he's commanded his precepts, but he's commanded his precepts to be kept diligently, you see, at the end of verse four. And that, of course, leads the psalmist directly into prayer, beginning in verse five. The, there's, there's a prayer of the righteous man that rounds out this section of Psalm 119. Now, I want to make three observations this prayer, beginning in verse 5 and going through verse 8. The first thing is obvious. It really comes just from even my description up to this point, that, that what he does in response to the fact that God has given his word and it's to be kept What he does is he immediately goes to God and asks that God would do a work transforming him and keeping him close to his word. In other words, the psalmist doesn't simply do what we might do at the end of verse four and say, I got to try harder. Keep me accountable, you know, friend. No, no. What he does is he goes to God and and, and he asks God to, to make his ways steadfast. It's not simply a resolution to keep. It's a prayer, a request for God's help, because the only proper response to the revelation of God is to do it. But but once once you're faced with doing it, you realize, I I need God to work in me. I need God's help to attain to this. You want to be like Ezra? Ezra, it says, set his heart, can heart language, his heart to, to study the law of God and to keep it and then to teach his statutes in all Israel. Well, well, the psalm knows that God's word is a word to be kept. We can't be like those in James 1 who, who hear the word and forget what they've heard, or those who look in a mirror and then immediately forget what they've seen. James says we need to be doers of the word, not hearers only. And so we go to God in prayer because of that. Even with the psalmist's knowledge of what the blessed life is like, he describes it in verses one through three, he still also knows his own heart. And he looks at himself, compares it to the blessed man, understands that God has been clear in his word. And and he says what that that hymn says, the the attitude behind verses five through eight is is what what we sing, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. And so he says, Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Charles Spurgeon, when commenting on this verse, says this, Our ways are by nature opposed to the way of God and must be turned by the Lord's direction from that which they originally take or they will lead us to our own destruction. And then he goes on to put it this way. We must ask the Lord to work our works in us or we shall never work out 
his commandments. That's exactly what the psalmist does here in five through eight. This is the prayer of the righteous one. This is the question we have to ask ourselves. The question you have to ask yourself today is this. Are you praying in this way? As you immerse yourself in scripture, are you aware that scripture has to be obeyed? That it's given, God's given his precepts, that we actually walk in them, that we do them? And then are you praying along those lines in your own life? When you're reading the Bible, it should never be far from your mind to immediately ask the Lord to strengthen you, ask the Lord to change you, ask the Lord to conform you more and more to what you're reading of his will. Now, the second thing I want to point out about this prayer is how informed it is by God's word. Look at verse 5. He uses the word ways in the ESV. In verse, that, that's, the, that's, by the way, that's the, the uh, way that's connected with what he says in verse 1. He, he wants to be one whose way is blameless. The blessed man is the one whose way is blameless. And so then he says, oh, that my way would be steadfast. In verse 6, he references the commandments of God. And that's the, the noun form of the verb that we see in verse 4. Or you could say that verse 4 is the verbal form of the noun in, in verse 6. Uh, and then look at verse 7. He talks about having an upright heart. And why does he ask for that? Because he knows, according to verse 2, that the blessed man is the one whose whole heart is devoted to God. And in verses 5 and 8, he talks about the statutes of God. In other words, what we see is this, that this, this prayer reflects in its very words what he has declared to be true, what he knows to be true about the word of God and about the man of God and about the blessed life of the man of God. This is the kind of thing we should cultivate in our own lives. You need to cultivate this in your life, that as you pray and read the Bible, there's almost this perpetual circle. There's a kind of feedback loop. You read and you pray. And then as you're praying, you should filter your requests, your burdens, your needs, the things that are coming to your mind. Filter them through what the Bible says so that you pray according to the will of God. And then you read your Bible some more and you realize how things need to change and you pray for that. And as you're praying, you're, you're thinking through the scriptures. Remember that great example of what Daniel does in Daniel chapter 9? He's reading the prophet Jeremiah and he's reading about the 70 years. And immediately, what does he do? He says, I got to pray about these 70 years. I've got to, I've calculated the years. It says he read it and he did some calculations. And this is, we're about at that point. I'm going to pray for this. And so he's praying based on the scriptures. And then the scriptures are informing prayer. And then as God answers his prayer, Daniel's filtering that through what the Bible says. And it's all connected in Daniel's mind. And that's the way this little prayer is in verses 5 through 8. It's all driven and formed by the word of God. It's informed by a knowledge of his own uh, self, his own weakness. But it's also informed by what God expects, what God actually wants. We want to be asking for the right things and understanding and having our mind conformed to God's word. Third comment I would make is this about this little prayer in this prayer particularly at the end of the prayer, we see something of the way of salvation in all of this description. Calvin has a great deal to say about that last petition in verse 8. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. 
And what Calvin writes in part is this, we know this, there is no man which wholly keepeth the law of God. We are all transgressors thereof. We are all miserable sinners. We must therefore run unto our good God. One of the teachings that we receive about the way of salvation in this prayer is just that. You need to flee to God. Flee to God for your salvation from sin. Flee to God for your forgiveness. Flee to God for the help that you need to actually do what he's commanded you to do, what he's made so clear in his word. Our salvation comes from the Lord. What do we find when we run to God? Well, you know what we find when you run to God? It's good news in the scriptures. What you find when you run to God is that the Bible says, draw near to God and, and he'll draw near to you. We find that God is a saving God, that God is a God of mercy, that God is a God who delights in forgiving sin. We find the kind of salvation that the writer understands is the basis for his whole life. Do not utterly forsake me. What else do we find when we run to God in this way? Well, we actually find that God not only is willing to receive those who come to him and show mercy to them, not only do we depend on him for our salvation, but what we find amazingly is that God, by his Holy Spirit, promises and in fact does just what this blessed man is supposed to do in us. In in other words, this word testimonies, take this word testimonies in verse 2, blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart. Well, well, when you pull the string of that word and you look at the rest of the scriptures, you realize that in Ezekiel 36, the Lord promises by his spirit that he would write these testimonies on the hearts of those who come to him in repentance. Not only is God in a broad sense the source of our salvation and the source of our help, but God the Holy Spirit is the one who promises to work in us in order to cause us to love his law and to know his testimonies and to serve him with our transformed heart. And then what do we find when we run to him for salvation through Jesus Christ? Well, perhaps most beautifully of all, we see Christ displayed in these eight verses. We see Christ displayed and portrayed as the one who is perfectly blameless. The Bible actually equates our Lord with a spotless sacrifice, a spotless sacrificial lamb. We find one whose whole heart was devoted to God in every particular, in every aspect, in public and in private. We find the one who, verse 6, he says, I shall not be put to shame. We, we see one when we flee to the Lord who bore our shame on, on, on himself that we might, not lo- no, we might no longer have to suffer from it. And we find, when we look to God in this way, the one who, in the words of Psalm 22.1, which Jesus quotes on the cross, we find one who cries out, asking why God has forsaken that same word from verse 8, him. And yet, who in that moment purchased pardon for us on Calvary's tree. In other words, we find the one who perfectly kept the law on our behalf. 
bore our shame and was forsaken that we might be received by God. And so what we see in this psalm is nothing less than the picture of a blessed life, the provision of God through his word, and then this glorious prayer, which which ultimately takes us into the very heart of the salvation that's provided to us in our triune God and Savior. Well, let's pray together. Our Father, thank you for this introduction. What a glorious depth there is to each of these phrases. And we're conscious that we have barely scratched the surface of it. And yet, oh Lord, use it by your spirit as you promised to do to transform us, point us to Christ, draw us near to yourself and conform us to your word. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.